chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Um, Tony's going to come up now um, to, to preach to us, and I, I'm going to pray with him before we start that. So, Tony, if you'll come on up. Don't for Father, thank you um, for your great love, uh, your great mercy, and 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 the glory that you've shown us. Um, Lord, I pray for my brother Tony today as he um, as he preaches this word to us. Lord, let us uh, give him strength and power uh, and clarity of thought and vision. And Lord, um, be with us as we seek to hear and pay attention and, and to let your word um, enter not only our ears but our minds and our hearts for your glory. Lord, we love you, and we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. <clears throat> All right, let's start this out with a question. How many of you went to high school? So it's an older room. Most of us went to high school. How many of you, with the other hand, at some point were witnesses of high school drama? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about like Shakespeare, you know, I'm talking about like what so-and-so's doing to so-and-so and so-and-so's mad at so-and-so. You with me? High school drama? Raise your hand if you loved high school drama. We got one person who loved the drama. Um, the very first meeting that I can remember having with a pastor, so after I became a Christian, I went to the pastor to sit down was to talk to him and get advice on some high school drama. Um, so-and-so was mad at so-and-so because of some kind of scandal, and I'm a friend that's caught in the middle, and I don't know how to talk to her, and I don't know how to talk to him, and I don't know what to do. I just feel caught in the middle. Anybody ever been there? A few of us? And I went, and I sat down with the pastor because he was the guy with the answers. And I said, Pastor... What do I say? How do I mediate this conflict? And uh, he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I don't know. And I was like taken aback because there's a reason you schedule a meeting and you sit down in the little office with the books. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know how you mediate a conflict like this. He said, maybe pray. Um... And for the first time, I, I found myself caught in a place where, like, I wanted advice from God about how to handle people. And I didn't know the answer. I expected the pastor to, to hold his hand to his head 
and to wave his other hand towards me and divine the perfect response that I should have. And he didn't give me one like that. But he did point me to God's word. I think a few weeks ago I said there are times that I wish and probably you wish whenever we're in the middle of some kind of trouble that we could hear a voice from heaven like a big booming Tony, Derek, Rich, listen to me. And then a bullet list, you know, like a bullet point list of how to proceed. We wish that we could have that kind of thing, that we could respond to our situations with exact knowledge of what God wants us to do. And, but I mean, I've, I've never heard a booming voice. And so if we want to hear God's word on how we react to the situations we find ourselves in, the, con- the, the conflicts that we find ourselves in, the heartbreak that we find ourselves in, if we want to hear what God has to say to us, there is one sure source, and it's his word. God's word. And so uh, today we're going to work through, we're just going to kind of work through verse by verse, a passage that deals with some very practical things. What do you do when you run into high school drama, even if you're not in high school? What do you do when someone hurts you and it feels like that wound won't go away? How do you respond? Um, So we're going to walk step by step through this, um, but I want to start off with a statement. Okay, so so listen, listen closely to this. God doesn't just want to change our behavior. And if we don't think clearly as we go through these words, we'll get the idea that we need to change our behavior, and that's it. God doesn't just want to change our behavior. He wants to reorient our heart. He wants to take the twisted up mess that's in us and change it so that our focus comes off of ourselves the things that we think would be good for us, and our focus is placed on the good of other people. If we walk away from this passage thinking that we have advice on how to do better in our own lives for us, we've missed the point. God wants to reorient our hearts, take our eyes off ourselves, and put it on others. Not just our own good, but the good of the family, the good of the kingdom. And so let's go ahead and start at verse 25. It'll be in your, in your Bibles or up on the board. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember Rich talked about how Paul was speaking to the Ephesian church acknowledging that they, were, that they had been complete Gentiles, that is, pagans, people who didn't love or follow God, and that they had lived as people who don't know God live. Like, they, they just kind of made their own way in the world and made their decisions based on what they thought was best. But now that they were followers of God, they had to put away, they had to put away the former way of life, to not live as the godless people around them would live, but live differently. And this gets into the specifics of that. How do you live differently? What does that look like? And so the first thing he says 
is put away falsehood. Put away falsehood. Now let's acknowledge the assumption here. If, if we're to put away falsehood, what does that mean? That means at some point we had it out. Right? If I tell my kids to put away their toys, it's because they're all over the floor. At some point they've had them out. And so there's an assumption here when Paul talks to the Ephesians, when the Bible speaks to us, that falsehood is a problem. Um, that there is something in us that drives us towards lying, towards deception. Um, raise your hand if you love it when you're lied to. There's a lot, of, a lot of audience response here. No one loves it when they're lied to, right? If you've talked to someone and they tell you, I mean, I could name names, I'm not going to, but whenever you talk to someone to get information and they give you a flat-out lie and then you run into them a couple of months later and you realize it's a lie, how do you feel towards that person? Love and goodness and kindness? No, everybody hates liars, but we've all been liars, right? So whenever we're the ones being lied to, we hate it. But whenever we're the ones caught in something, what's the pull on us? The sin in us draws us towards falsehood, right? So we hate the feeling of pain and betrayal whenever someone close to us breaks our trust, but when we're confronted with our own behavior, I mean, we say things like, oh, I didn't mean it, you know? Why did you say that about me? Oh, I didn't really mean it. I was just joking. Um, or we blame it on the cat, right? That was my go-to source. Something gets broken in the house, and my answer was the cat went crazy, even though we had the most mellow cat in the world, right? Your spouse comes home and says, why didn't you do that thing that you told me you were going to do? Um, I've been on the receiving end of that one before, deservedly. And I rushed to, oh, I ran out of time. You know, I was working on other things, which meant I was browsing, you know, Facebook or Reddit or something. We hate the feeling of pain and betrayal when other people lie to us, but we excuse our own behavior. And God speaks to us, and he says, put that away. Put it away. And don't just put away falsehood. There's a second side to this, and we'll see this in each one of these points. Don't just put away falsehood, but what? In the second part of verse 25, it says, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So if falsehood is gone, there's only one thing left, right? And what's that? That's the truth. So if you get caught in a sin and your brother or sister or spouse or friend confronts you on that, and they say, look, you've messed up, and falsehood is gone, you've put it away, what's left? The truth. 
And on the other side, if we're the brother or sister that notices a friend in sin, there can be a temptation to falsehood there too, right? Oh, you're fine. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. But if falsehood is put away, what's left? When we talk to our friend, when we talk to our spouse, whenever we're getting into the real issues with conflict. Truth. Certainly we speak the truth with grace. Like we're not supposed to use the truth as a bludgeon. You don't go up to your friend and beat them over the head with what they've done wrong. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Certainly there's grace, and certainly there's, there's such a thing as saying it at the right time. Um, like whenever someone's in the midst of brokenness and they're hurting, probably not the best time to bring up everything that they've done wrong. And if you do have to at that time, definitely in a gracious way, don't hear me saying that we put away falsehood and we all go on the attack. That we all go on a crusade for the truth. So with grace at the right time, but still truth. Sometimes the truth hurts us. Sometimes the truth hurts the other people. And so the thought can come up, why cause that pain, right? That's the kind of gut reaction that I often have if I have to talk to someone. Why cause the pain? And that's where we're at the last part of this verse. It says, and at the end of verse 25, do this, why? For we are members of one another. The image here is we're members of the same body. I'm a hand, you're a hand, but we make up the same body. I'm a foot, you're an eye, but we make up the same body. And what happens, I mean, I'm, no doctors in the room, doctors in the room. He's like, I'm a doctor, not a medical doctor, but it counts, right? That's, that's legit. Um, what happens when one part of your body starts lying to the other part? It's called a neurological disorder. So people who have dementia and they see things that aren't there and it causes major problems, major danger. We can't lie to one another because we're members of one another. And if we lie to one another as a part of a family, as a part of a body, as a part of a kingdom, things become unhealthy. Churches become unhealthy. Unless there can be openness and honesty, um, things will fall apart. Things will get wounded. And the wounds will be worse than the pain of confronting truth. Does that make sense? And so put away falsehood. Speak the truth. That's the first step. On to verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so let's start with this first phrase. Be angry and don't sin. Like, this is a verse that has puzzled people over the years, and it's understandable, because... Oftentimes, whenever we think of anger, and we think of a God who's merciful towards us and who doesn't show anger towards his children, it can be odd to hear the phrase, be angry, but don't sin. 
And so notice that there's an acknowledgement from Paul here again, that anger will come. You are going to get angry. It is going to happen. Um, I got angry yesterday, not this, not this morning yet, but yesterday and the day before that. Like, frustration is in our lives. For, for those of us who live in the real world, where things aren't smooth and gliding and easy, we run into opposition. Whether it's the person who cuts us off in traffic and could have very nearly killed us. Like, that's a real wrong. Or whether it's um, the fact that maybe whenever we go to the DMV, we get the runaround needlessly. Like, those are honest frustrations. Anger is going to come. If we live in a world of sin, where I sin against my wife, and she sins against me, and I can count on that because we live in a world filled with sin, I'm going to get angry. She's going to get angry. We can't just, just get rid of anger. And so there's an acknowledgement that anger will come, and that sometimes it's entirely justified. But here's the question. When anger comes, what are we going to do with it? Justified or unjustified anger, what decision will we make once we're feeling anger? How far are we going to let it go? How long are we going to let it stew? When anger comes, it can do one of two things. It can drive us to sin, thus the be angry but don't sin. It can drive us towards sin, or it can drive us towards seeking out reconciliation. It can drive us towards desiring a resolution. Because when we get angry, we can either let it fester, we can either let it hurt us, or we can use that and say there's a problem, we need to figure out how to solve the problem. Sometimes when I get angry at someone, the problem is them. And sometimes the problem's me. And sometimes the problem is us. But when anger comes, are we going to seek out a resolution? Do you see the end? It said, the end of the verse, it said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, some of you, if you've ever had premarital counseling or have ever read a, a book on, on marriage, oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll say with a southern accent, if you're watching the video like I did, um, don't go to bed angry. You know, That's kind of the advice. Don't go to bed angry. This is where it comes from. The idea is if you get mad at someone, you, by the end of the day, <laughs> try to resolve that so that it doesn't fester. Could there be wisdom in sometimes sleeping on something? I'm not saying that there can't sometimes be wisdom in that, but the principle here is you don't wait around. You don't wait around. You work it out. You seek resolution. Um, there's an obvious question that comes into that. Let's say you've been wronged or you wrong another person, and there's a fight. Then you realize that this isn't good. That this status quo of them being angry at me and me being angry at them, this can't stay. And you go to them 
and they flip you the bird. Right? They say, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be around you. I don't trust you. I don't care about you. I don't love you. I don't like you. Right? You're seeking resolution, but it doesn't seem like there's any resolution in sight. Is that a realistic scenario? Some of us are there right now. I'm going to bring in a verse uh, from another book written by Paul. This is Romans chapter 12. It should show up on the board. I'm not going to walk through this word by word, kind of like we are with our passage, but I want you to get the sense of this passage, so I'm going to read it. It starts out in verse, um, verse 17. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, what? Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And hear this. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. What I want us to see in the feeling of this passage in Romans is that the attitude that God wants us to have that reorientation of the heart that he's working in us is radical. Not in the, the Ninja Turtle sense, but in the, it's, it's majorly different. It's radically different from what our heart wants to do. And notice that it's also ruthless. It leaves us no room to squirm. If your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live in harmony with one another. There's no room for attack. And so if you're in that situation where they don't want resolution, you are not free to just write them off and just say, well, forget about them. You are not free to just return their hostility. Well, if that's how they're going to be, that's how I'm going to be. Anybody else ever heard those words coming out of their lips? Seek out resolution as far as it depends on you. And so why be this way? I mean, there's something about coals there. Oftentimes people will grasp onto that, and they'll say, if I'm good to my enemies, there's something about God pouring coals on them, so I'm all for that. right? But that's not the heart of the passage. Um, Why do this? What's a personal reason? We see that in verse 27. Um, 
little short here. It just says, and give no opportunity to the devil. We have a real enemy. See, there's this thought that when we're in a conflict with someone, that, you know, they're our enemy, that they're the problem, that that's, that's an issue. But we have another enemy. One who prowls and is looking for weakness that he can attack in us. The images of a lion looking for a sick animal to pounce on. And so recognize that anger unresolved, like festering anger, anger that we don't resolve, anger that we don't pursue resolution on, it makes us an easy target of the devil. What he wants to do is take our anger, take our frustration, and he wants to worm his way into our heart and into our soul and whisper in our ears and confirm all the suspicions that we have about the person we're mad at or the people that we're mad at. Have you ever noticed how when you're angry at someone, they can't do anything right? Right? You're angry at someone, and so all of a sudden you pick up every single little tiny thing they do wrong. To where even if they came in and were trying to be nice to you because you're angry, you see even that niceness as somehow suspicious. Um, I, was, I worked in an office one time, and I'll change the names to protect the guilty. Um, we'll just say there was Sally and Bobby Joe and Sally and Bobby Joe were having fights every day and one day after talking to the manager um, about the issue Sally decided she was going to stop being mean to Bobby Joe and she was going to come in and be nice to Bobby Joe and uh, I remember Bobby Joe talking to Billy May about how she's planning something, right? She's really nice today. That means, about, that means the knife is about to come in from the other side. The devil will worm his way into our hearts. He'll whisper in our ear, and he'll confirm all our bad suspicions about our, our enemy. And what I want us to see is that when that happens, there's a real danger that the anger in us will just wrap up our heart and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until it's so tight and we're so infected with it that we can never get out of it. The pain goes so deep that untangling it takes decades. That, that's real. It happens to so many of us. God means to fill us with peace. But when anger festers, when the devil's given an opportunity to grow it, that peace is replaced with turmoil and bitterness. And peace is not only shattered in us internally, but it can also be shattered in a community. Like a home, where the peace is gone in one person, and it takes the peace out of the house. 
mom and dad are fighting and no one gets any rest, right? A person in a pew over here, a person in a pew over here, we don't have pews, we have chairs, but you get the idea. They're fighting and no one in the congregation can get any rest because of it. Peace is shattered not only in us, the devil finds an opportunity to infect and hurt not just us personally, but those we love the most. And so the question is, what will we do with anger? Will we let it ride? When it comes, will we just embrace it? Or will we fight it? Will we seek resolution? Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The message here is clear. Thieves, stop stealing. And again, Paul knows his audience. He knows that there are thieves among the Ephesians. And as I look out into this crowd and as I look into a mirror back onto myself, I know that there are thieves here too. Some of us, have been thieves in the traditional sense. Some of us really have stolen. I won't ask for a raise of hands on this one. Right? Some of us really have taken something that was someone else's because we wanted it. That's theft in the traditional sense. And then some of us are thieves in other ways. We seek what's called in the Bible ill-gotten gain. Dishonest gain. The idea is that we can maliciously use, like, loopholes, right, so that we come out ahead. That we can use dishonesty so that we come out ahead. I know some of you have bought a house, went to redo the bathroom, black mold everywhere. That the, you know the owner knew about it because stuff's been installed to cover it up, right? Rich and I were having a conversation about this the other day. Don't be that guy. Because whenever you do something like that, I'm going to get out of this place and just let the next person worry about it. If you're a renter, you break something bad and you patch it up just enough and then pretend, oh, I don't know what happened. Right? You use dishonesty so that you come out ahead somehow. Um, This can happen at work. Whenever you use dishonesty and take credit for someone else's work. Like, theft, there is the traditional theft, but in another sense, there is a a theft that is sneaky, that so many of us justify. We break the rules, and we smile at ourselves, saying, boy, aren't I smart. I figured a way around it. And Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Those of you who have the mentality of, I'm going to take care of me, do this. He says, don't steal, rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Isn't that exactly what the thief wants to hear? The person who's been avoiding the hard work and the hard thing, what's God's answer to that person? Labor, hard work, honest work with your own hands. How do you move forward? You do what he says. 
Um, notice how it says honest work with your own hands. Very little work is as honest as the work you do with your hands. If your job is to clean the gutters, you know, because you're doing lawn care, the gutters are either clean or they're not <laughs> at the end of your day. There's no way to, to fake that. If your job is to build a table for someone, you can't fake building a table. Maybe you can cut corners, but it, the work that you do with your hands is honest work. Um, this isn't saying that if you're in a job right now and you're, you're conscience is leading you to say, I don't know about what I'm doing. I'm not saying you need to go like do custodial work, but the work you do, the efforts you put forward needs to leave no doubt in your mind that you're doing something honest, that things are on the up and up. There's no glamour in that. There's no prestige in that, but there is honor in it. And to what end? Do you do that just so your conscience is clean? That's not the answer. It says, not for your own good feelings. This isn't for your bank account, but rather it's so that you have what? You have the ability to share with those in need. At one time, the thief took from the others. Now he's giving back. Again, notice that this isn't some minor behavioral change. It signifies a complete shift in the heart. The one who used to take is now the one who gives. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. So if you're sitting out there, or if you're me standing here, and you've thought, I've dodged the bullet so far. I'm good with anger. I don't think I've stolen anything. Um, this one can be rough. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The idea is that what we say really, really matters. James, the apostle, a writer of another book, calls the tongue a rudder that steers the whole body and a fire that consumes. What we say matters. So what is corrupting talk? Is that dirty words? Like, don't use the four letters? Like, is that, is that what we're talking about? Is it dirty jokes? Um, is it, you know, your off-color humor? Um, I'm not going to say no to those things, as if aren't, those aren't a part of it, but there's a problem. Whenever we look at corrupting speech and we think of lists and categories, like there's a list of words I need to stay away from, or like I just don't get to laugh about sex, like if those are our categories, um, there's a real problem because things start to become abstract. We start to think of, oh, this is just a harmless joke. Like, it's not actually hurting anybody, right? The, the words we use is just a rhetorical flourish, right? I use it to give emphasis to what I'm saying. Um, for those of you who are Star Trek fans, like Star Trek IV, Spock learns that cussing is a thing and calls it colorful metaphors. And sometimes we can, we can think of what we speak of as just colorful metaphors, just letting off steam. Um, if we look at it as lists and categories, words we can't say, things we can't talk about, then that leads us to problems whenever we open the Bible. Because Paul uses some harsh language in some place, um, in some places. Um, Song of Songs is an entire book about sex. 
and it's not dour, it's not, you know, down on it. Whenever it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, it's a much more demanding uh, command. We're not ever to speak in a way that covers over or distracts from the ugliness of sin. The reason that dirty joke isn't helpful is because it makes light of the, pact, of the fact that people are sinning and they're so caught up in sin that they laugh about it. Do you get what I'm saying? So you make a joke about the doctor that cheats on his wife with a patient and you realize that that really happens, that really happens and lives are destroyed and now we're laughing about it. It makes light of the ugliness of sin And so the words that we use, the sentences that we speak to one another, should in no way be corrupt. Rather, they should build up. We should ask the question, how can I strengthen my brother or sister? They're having a bad time, and so I would tell them an off-color joke to get them to laugh. How about instead of doing that, I think about what would actually strengthen them, what would really encourage them, not just make them laugh. I don't want to generate angst or frustration in them. How can I give them grace? Flee corrupt talk. I'm going to read verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This refers back to the whole list we've been kind of going over. And there's an idea that if we, if we ignore this counsel if we ignore what God is trying to tell us about our attitudes and about our postures, then we will grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, does that mean we, we make him mad? Like some people here, grieve. You're going to make the Holy Spirit mad and he's not going to have anything to do with you? Um, the best illustration that I can give is, is that of like a parent to a child. Um, some of you aren't parents, some of you are, but what I've learned since I became a parent is that my children can do bad, bad things and it hurts me because I know where that leads as I look at them, right? It, it not only frustrates me in the inconvenience of the moment, but I also am afraid that someday they're going to be 25 and out of the house and they're going to act that way and it's going to wreck them. And so I'm grieved for them. And so you, you, you discipline them and you seek to, you know, shake some sense into them. Don't do that. And there's grief involved. If we ignore these things, we can grieve the Holy Spirit like a child grieves a parent who only wants our good. Who only wants our good. It talks about how the Holy Spirit has sealed us. The image there is of a promise, a guarantee that he's going to bring us to full redemption. That one day, we will be with God in glory. Experiencing the most wonderful things we can imagine and things that we can't imagine. He's working on us. He's shaping us towards something that is glorious. And so don't fight him. Don't fight him. You hear these hard things about attitudes that need to change. Don't fight him. 
coming towards the end here. Before Paul closes out this section, he returns back to the topic of anger. Um, Because maybe, just maybe, that's one of the hardest ones to deal with. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He just goes through a list. Bitterness. That's that resentment. That jaded feeling that just feeds ongoing anger. Wrath. Those are those moments of just indignant outburst where your anger bubbles up and goes over the top and you just can't help but rage. Anger is restated here again. And in the Greek, it's a little bit different. This idea of seething, simmering, ongoing anger. This is the anger that you didn't resolve, that you didn't put a stop to. Clamor. That's the loud quarreling. That's when you lose restraint. And you get mad at a person, and you start shouting. How could you do that? Clamor. And then there's the word slander. Um, This is the same word that's used for blasphemy against God in many places. The idea is you profane, you bring low that which is not low. You use abusive speech that you vilify someone. You paint a picture that they're the devil either by lying about them, by gossiping about them. Like, it, you don't have to just be... Like, husbands, wives, if you wanted to, you could make your spouse look really bad, right? With the truth. Gossip sometimes is the truth meant for evil. Put away slander. And then at the end it says, all malice, along with all malice. That's a summary term. Basically, Paul's saying, if I missed one, if you have any ill will at all, like the term for malice can range from like trouble that's not even necessarily evil trouble, all the way to complete wickedness. It's a, it's a whole spectrum. And Paul says, along with all malice. Put it away. Put it away. If there is any ill will in us towards anyone, we don't have a leg to stand on before the Lord. That's hard to hear. And then it gives the opposite. Don't do that. Rather, do this. Verse 32. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He's talking about the same people, the same people that you would feel rage and malice towards. He says, be kind. Like, think well of them. Try to think well of them. Think the best about them. Be pleasant towards them. Build them up. Be patient with them. And then tenderhearted, The idea is be compassionate, be merciful, 
be sympathetic with them. So if they've wronged you, God says, show them sympathy. And forgive them. You don't hold anything over them. You don't push them away. And do all of this as God in Christ forgave you. Christ, while he was hanging on the cross, looked down at the people that were crucifying him and laughing at him and mocking him. And then he looked back up to heaven and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the midst of the most evil thing in the universe, he was compassionate and forgiving and kind. How can we do that? We don't do that because it's in us naturally. We don't run from anger because we're powerful people that are motivated to have the best life we can. We do it and we can do it because of what Christ has done for us. God and Christ gave us grace. If there's anyone who deserved to have bitterness and wrath and anger and malice towards anyone else, it was God towards the creation that gave him the finger. He said, we don't need you and we don't want you and we hate you and we'd rather worship a million other things. but he forgave us. And he wants us to forgive others. So that's it. That's our passage. God calls us to a radically new way of looking at other people, even the people that have hurt us the most. He calls us to dig down deep into ourselves and ask ourselves hard questions about how we see others about how we see him. And the purpose of him giving us these words, these passages, these recommendations about how to deal with our high school drama is because he wants to see our heart reoriented. He wants to see us changed. He wants our focus to come off of ourselves and what's been done to us and put it on the family of God and say, how can I be a blessing? How can I be a blessing? Um, I thought briefly about how do we apply this? What's the four things I can tell you to go home and do this week? And the truth is, is that for all of us, it's going to be different. Some of us need to let go of anger. Some of us need to let go of thievery. Some of us need to let go of a self-centeredness that destroys all of our relationships. We're all in different places. And so the only point of application that I have for you is to take your Bible this week, open this passage, read it again, and say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. Make me different. Transform my heart. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are an angry people. We are a hurtful people. 
we can be a bitter people. And we look at these words and know that you want something different for us. You want real change in us. You want us to experience the kind of life that, that we could never figure out or come up with on our own. Lord, we ask you would forgive us. That you'd continue to forgive us. Lord, help us to remember your grace. Help us to cling to you. When we feel hurt, and the last thing we want to do is show kindness, we ask that you would remind us of your kindness. When we feel angry, and the last thing that we want to do is show gentleness, Lord, remind us of your gentleness. When we feel deeply, deeply wrong, and we want nothing more than to seek the complete surrender of someone else, Lord, we ask that you would give us a posture of forgiveness, the same posture that doesn't wait for the other person to say they're sorry. Where would we be, Lord, if you'd waited for us to say we're sorry before you pursued us? Lord, change our hearts, change our minds, renew our lives, patch up our relationships, and draw us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.